Hi, I'm Kanika, and you're listening to That's Total Mom Sense, the podcast, where I interview public figures on their life lessons in parenting, legacy, and built-in sixth sense. Hey, what's up? I'm Kelly Rowland, and you're checking out That's Total Mom Sense. Hi, this is Chelsea Clinton, and my experience on That's Total Mom Sense was fantastic. It's me, Bobby Brown. Can't wait to share my story. Thank you to my guests, brand partners, community, and you for making the show possible. Episodes release every Thursday, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can join my tribe by logging on to thatstotalmomsense.com and by following me on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at Kanika Chadha Gupta. Now let's dive in to today's episode. Continuing the theme of prominent South Asian authors, today's episode is with Anika Sharma. She has been a beacon in our community. Anika is a multi-hyphenate, equally passionate about science and all things creative, and has over a decade of experience in education, healthcare, and communications. She is a podcast host, author, and speaker. Following the release of her first novel in 2015, she was signed to Sourcebooks for a three-book deal. The first, Love, Chai, and Other Four-Letter Words, was named Amazon Editor's Pick and Library Journal Best Book of 2021. Sugar, Spice, and Can't Play Nice was released in May of 2023. In addition to translating her lived experience as a South Asian into rom-com novels, she is the co-founder and co-host of That Desi Spark podcast, one of the largest independently run South Asian podcasts in the U.S., which has led to appearances on BBC, Forbes, and Spotify's Billboard campaign. She currently lives in the greater New York City area and is a lover of long conversations, superhero movies, reading, and travel. Anika, welcome to That Soul Mom Sense. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited, and this is so longer overdue, so I am yes. extra, extra pumped to be here. Same, same. We we did it. I'm so, so excited to dive into all the things. Let's start with just getting to know you. If you were to describe yourself in three words, what would they be? Bubbly, tenacious, and somebody else asked me this question earlier. So vivacious is what I'm going with. Ooh, I love it. I love it. Um, and I think they're just so appropriate and instantly right off the bat, you are so authentic in your relationships. And we felt that when we had this hour long conversation on the phone and, you know, still haven't met face to face. So <laughs> bubbly I know I'm excited for that day. I'm looking forward to that day because we did have such an instant connection. It was so warm and it just felt like, oh, this is what it's like when you come home and you just meet somebody that you know and love already. And it was just, that vibe just went through our entire first conversation and the follow-ups <laughs> after that. So I am just not only extra excited to be here to do this with you, but you know, the conversation has always been so natural with you. So it's right back at you. What was a young Anika like? So I grew up in State College, Pennsylvania, which is where Penn State University is. My dad actually had moved to the U.S. as a grad student and had left me and my mom behind for eight months before he had enough money to bring us over as well. And at the time when I was growing up, there weren't a whole lot of brown people in State College. In the grand scheme of things, it's relatively diverse because everybody is tied to Penn State. And so even though it's a transient population, people who stay on as professors or assistant professors, as my dad did, they ended up being relatively diverse, but it's 
very much the story of a lot of different brown kids that grew up in the U.S. at that time in the 80s and 90s, where, you know, there was maybe five graduating kids who were also of South Asian background in our class of 600. So it wasn't a huge population. We knew each other. It's gotten a lot more diverse over the years. But the one thing I do have to really credit our community with is that they emphasized it was 1980s culture, like any immigrant family, it gets frozen in time. So whatever they're teaching you is from the time that they left. So it was a lot of quote unquote culture classes and a lot of dances and a little bit older fashioned style and a little bit lagging sense of what culture looked like in India. But our parents really, really tried. And so even if it was five of us, they did their best to give us whatever they could. Whenever there was a grad student who passed through, for example, who was a dance teacher, we would take lessons from that person for as long as they stayed. And as long as, you know, with a lot of maximizing resources. Now I look back, especially living in the New York area, where now most of my friends are brown or part of the brown community in some way. It's like night and day. And it's been remarkable to be able to now helm a South Asian podcast, now write books about the South Asian experience, because I never would have fathomed that for myself growing up there. I never felt like I fit in. And that is the story of so many first-generation kids, but I definitely struggled at first, even trying to find people who I felt like I fit in with. And now to be able to have this transformation feels like this huge, huge full circle moment for little me. Yes. Yeah, it really, really does. You're filling a void for this generation and generations to come, which is really, really incredible. And what are some nuances to your personality that just make you so inherently Desi? My dad told me when I was younger, whatever you are, be good at it. And I think that he was right. And I've used that a lot in whatever I do is like, whatever you do, be good at it. But I don't think I realized exactly how Daisy that was until (laughs) I realized like everything I did with heart, I would try to take to the next level. And I think that that is inherently like a first generation Daisy thing where you're like, oh yeah, mediocrity is not a thing. I can't do that. You know? And, (laughs) And it takes a little bit of unlearning sometimes to be like, I can just have a hobby and I can be a terrible artist and still enjoy it. Or, you know, whatever it is, like, I can knit and I could be really bad at it. But, you know, I think that that's probably the most inherently they see thing in terms of behavior. Of course, I save every plastic bag I ever come across for garbage cans and things like that. And there's never a actual Tupperware use in my apartment ever. It's always like the previous yogurt jar or yogurt right. pub or whatever. Yeah, yeah. There, there are many, many weird daisy quirks that I have, like a glass of hot milk before I go to sleep will put me to bed, um, things like that. Are, are definitely a part of my daily life too. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's the best. Um, I love how many inside jokes and, and fodder we have. We're like caricatures in a way. And it's, it's <laughs> and you've turned your passion for writing into your career. And so you really paid heed to your dad's advice. Can you extrapolate how writing has been just this common denominator in your um, professional life? Yeah. I mean, I have to give my parents credit on that one too. I think they knew me better than I knew myself. When I was in high school and in college, they used to tell me to major in journalism or marketing. And I thought with this inherent pressure that I put on myself, oddly, I looked around and thought, well, everybody else is going into sciences. I do think health is really interesting, especially women's health, which did actually inform my career a lot, but it wasn't like a, my, my passion in terms of, I had to work for science and writing came naturally 
And that's where my parents told me to go. They were like, there's a natural strength to go. But for whatever reason, I was like, no, no, I want to be a doctor. They were like, this kid's failing chemistry. She's not going to be a doctor, but whatever. We'll support whatever she wants. I went to college and majored in healthcare things and still had sort of this constant, even through my teaching career, which was in early childhood. And then eventually finally writing my book, it was almost like if you looked through my whole life and connected all the dots, writing and words were always the center of every success that I had had. So it was always sort of artistic where I was a dancer. I was, I, I journaled very angsty things. I can't tell you who they were about now because there were nicknames to code everything that I was talking about with all this drama, but I journaled every single day from fifth grade through uh, freshman year of college. So that gave me a lot of practice in just descriptive storytelling and narrative. And I read back on this and I'm like, I have no idea who these people are anymore. And I don't remember exactly what these situations are, but I can see exactly what happens. And it informed so much of the compassion and the empathy that's required for writing as well. Turning that into a career, it was not necessarily linear. There was a lot of pressure internally to do other things, but in the last, I'd say five years, and especially with this writing career taking off the way it did, it was like, oh, this is where I belong. And these doors are opening for me so much more naturally than they ever did with any kind of science career, any kind of corporate career, anything like that. So it's been a remarkable journey and being able to turn writing into something, getting an agent, getting published has just been absolutely magical. Yes. And walk us through that process. Did you write your books? I have them here, your sugar and spice and can't play nice. And then Love Chai and Other Four Letter Words, which is amazing. Tell us the genesis of these works. You wrote the first one and then optioned it or just break it all down. Yeah. So in 2012, I went through a breakup. So obviously decided to write a romantic novel after that as some sort of cathartic (laughs) healing, I guess. Um, and I wrote that and I was like, I'm finally writing my book. And I remember distinctly, it came downstairs and announced it. And my parents were like, finally, finally, she's writing a book. <laughs> and so I wrote this manuscript and then I had to sit on it because I was in grad school for a year for my first master's in education. And so I sat on it for a year and then I kept thinking about it and I kept thinking, this is what I want to do. I don't know what it is, but it's calling to me. So I ended up cutting what was at the time an incredibly long manuscript in half and polishing it up and submitting it to agents. And it took me about a year to finally land mine. You submit like a a pitch and a synopsis and sample chapters to each agent. And they sometimes take a long time because you can imagine they're getting like hundreds of submissions of three chapters and that's a lot of reading. So it took my agent about eight months to get back to me. And when she did, she offered representation. And then three months later, I had my first deal for a book that's no longer on shelves now. It It was called The Rearranged Life. And it fell under the genre now called new adults. It's like college romance. It was about an Indian girl and an American guy. And it was very cathartic. It was a lot of what was happening in my life and the lives of my friends. And, but then the publishing company started going downhill. So I pulled my rights. And now if you have a copy, it's basically a limited edition. But then as I was doing my MPH concurrently, my agent had taken out that work and a different manuscript out to these other editors. And this one editor wanted a story, three book deal about a set of Indian friends. And that was the only guideline she had. And so they signed me based on my old work for what became Love Chai and Other Four Letter Words and Sugar Spice and Can't Play Nice. And now this impending third book that I'm working on. So it's been kind of all over the place and very cool how it became a real thing and how, you know, I went from 
a small press and this manuscript very based on my life to a three book deal and releasing this now and just really getting to know these characters and uh, writing about New York, which is also, you know, a love of my life because I feel like my whole life started here. Yes. Yes. I love it. Can you flesh out the stories for us without giving too much away about Karen and Nash and Pyle and Ayan and all that ensues? Yeah, so my first book, uh, Love Chai and Other Four-Letter Words in this series follows Karen and Nash. Karen is an Indian transplant, and she falls for Nash, who is from Nashville, who is purposeful, but they meet in New York as neighbors, and they become sort of friends to lovers slowly, and her family has gone through their own very dramatic situation with her sister, and they theoretically already lost a child, so they have their own reservation, and you know, Nash has his own set of obstacles to face. And then the second book features File and Ayan. File is another character in Karen's friend group. So all this whole series is based around a set of four friends who are based in New York. They all have different kinds of backgrounds within the Indian American diaspora. Each of them gets their own love story. So book two follows File, who is a fashion designer and needs her family's financial backing to be able to get her where she wants to go. And her family is losing their company and kind of has to merge with this other family's company. And part of that deal is that the other family says, our second son's a little lost and you need to marry. We need to, well, we would like to make this business relationship turn into a family relationship if our children could get engaged, which is kind of normal slash Bollywood-esque uh, family yeah. relationships here <laughs> in, uh, in uh, Indian culture. And there's just one problem and that she already had a one night stand with him last week and she hates the guy. So right. it's a sort of friends to lovers to enemies to lovers. There's a lot of drama. It was really fun to write. <laughs> it, it reminds me of the Netflix movie Wedding Season. Oh, yeah, actually, now that I think about it, yeah, I can definitely, they play each other a lot. Ion also has his own purposes for saying yes to this. And the file has her own and they're sort of playing each other to get what they need. But, you know, obviously they need to fall in love because that, you know, what what fun would it be? It wouldn't be a rom-com if that didn't (laughs) happen. Yeah, of course. No, it's just, I think the predictability is part of the beauty. (laughs) Absolutely. You look for that. You want to have the happy ending at the end. That's beautiful. And then can you give us any insights on to what the third is going to be about? Yeah. Book three is actually about Akash, who is the sole guy in the Chai Masala Club, that group of friends. And it's a first love, second chance uh, love story. And so I'm fleshing it out, but the two of them met in college and it was a great love and a great loss. And what happens when you meet again and are you going to face the same obstacles again? Or are you going to figure it out? I think that, that this one might be the most relatable in the sense that so many of us meet our exes later on in life again. And we think like, what if, and sometimes it works right. out and sometimes it doesn't. So what is it about timing and, and what is it about your personality that changes? So this one's been fun. And it's also very fun to write from the perspective of a guy or at least the guy that I've gotten to know over three books, right? So yes. it's been really, really cool to write him. Um, I was really surprised at his reception. Honestly, in book one and two, a lot of readers were saying, I really love Akash, I want to read his story. So that really influenced whether he became book three or not. And it was because people were like, I love him. And I was like, me too, let's write a book. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah he gets to tell his story. That's awesome. You're going to say I watched too much Netflix, but like this is similar to Sex Life. Where, yeah. Oh my God. Know, yeah. Right? Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. She's just, 
And I mean, I will just reveal the spoiler on that is that, you know, she does get back with her ex and you never think she really needed to until things kind of unravel and people who you think were one way can actually rise to the challenge, like being a parent and being responsible and all of that. And you're like, oh, wow, I can actually see you in that light. And so, yeah, it's, it's so interesting. I think everyone does it. We're like, I'm very happy and content in this situation or may not be, but you always wonder what if. Yeah, absolutely. I think also when you're younger, you have this list of things that you want and you think that they're 100% ever going to change. And then when you get older, you realize, okay, some of these things I can adjust on. Some of them are absolutely non-negotiable and your list kind of change. The priorities change, even if the list kind of stays the same. And so it's really interesting. I've had so many friends who have gotten together with people who they had dated previously and it hadn't worked and for whatever reason. And then now as they met them as a grown adults, we're like, oh my God, you're the love of my life. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and it works. And so I think that that's a really fun relationship to explore because then at that point, you know them when they're younger, you know them when they're older, what happens in between, what makes them the way they are and why is it that this time it worked or it didn't work or whatever. So it's, yes. it's a lot of fun to write this one. Yes. Best plot twist. And now speaking of priorities, you have one very big one and a shift in your life being a mom. And I think it's the most beautiful journey to be on because not only are you discovering all these interesting nuances and facets about your child, you're doing that rediscovery of yourself. It has been the most transformative experience, which Everyone says, and I know that it's very much something that if you go through it, suddenly it makes sense whenever you didn't make sense before. Sometimes I look at her and I'm looking at her learning the smallest things. I was doing a puja the other day prayer and I had lit incense and I was watching her eyes go across the smoke and she was taking it in and just absolutely amazed. But then I watched her start following it down the room to Mm. the windows where it was going out. And I could see the wheels turning. Like, she's like, I don't know what that is. And I want to know. And she was kind of just so fascinated. And whenever you see that level of fascination and a little person who hasn't seen these things that we take for granted on a daily basis, it's just been so wonderful. I'm amazed by finding those moments every single day. I think it adds a lot of joy. And I think it's helped me just drop the phone or drop whatever felt like a big priority before, because I just want to watch it and take it in and experience the world through these small moments. And that's been really nice. I have felt so much more peace sometimes in those moments than I think I ever have as an adult on the grind and on this hustle and trying to, you know, get the next book deal or make the next podcast turn out really well or chase my day job or whatever it was, you know, it's just been really amazing to experience these small moments and go through them again with her. Yes. That's beautiful. I think that's exactly how you should take it in and the lens with which you should view it. What has it been like being this full-time creative? And and now, you know, thankfully you have other um, sources of inspiration to drive you, but you're also a mom and, you know, have certain to-do lists to get done in the day. So how is one kind of feeding the other? It's been a challenge. I'm not going to lie, but I'm not also going to sit in the pit of misery about it either. I think The challenging part has been that we don't have family locally. And right now, because I'm full-time creative, we're sort of bootstrapping a little bit more with life. So 
all of the resources that were available before where I would have been like, oh yeah, you know, daycare or let's hire nannies and let's not blink, think twice about those things. Some of those resources aren't as easily available for us right now because of the phase and the season that we're in. So that means that without that support, it's a lot of juggling. I'm very, very blessed that my husband is a healthcare administrator that can work from home. So we often trade, but that also means a lot of, okay, I've got her for the next two hours. I can't do anything productive, but I will be with her. And you take care of your thing and then swap. And then also trying to yeah. find in those moments where we can keep our sanity a little bit and like still focus <laughs> on each other or he can go play tennis or I can go, I don't know, watch a movie or something. Like those things are a bit challenging at the moment. And, you know, of course, with full-time creativity, things like health insurance, things like the day-to-day, how do we balance out our resources and make sure she's getting our best and the best? And how do we make sure we're also giving that to ourselves? And so yes. it's a lot of like, unique things for full-time creativity, but also a lot of broadly, every single mom and dad have gone through this kind of things, you know, that we're, we're in the throes of at the moment. So it's been incredible. Like I said, watching her grow, but there must have been their challenges too, with, with things like that. We suddenly lost our health insurance at one point, these random things that come family emergencies, things like that. They're a little bit more challenging to deal with sometimes with a child, with a, with a very small child. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, you know, figuring all of that out has been a lot of ups and downs. You feel everything on a magnitude that, I don't know, maybe we didn't feel before she came along. I feel like my highs are like, so crazy high. And my lows are like, oh my gosh, I'm never getting off the floor, you know? So it's like that roller coaster is like a whole another beast to tackle, I think, in motherhood, which I never respected. So if I ever sounded like a moron with all of my friends that became moms, I sincerely apologize. I get it now. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love how kind of honest and, and vulnerable you are about it. And I think you're doing something right and focusing on the positives more because you can feel really inundated and it's, of course, there's, you know, an element of filling your cup first, but it's also a mindset thing. And you really do have insights coming from your childhood uh, education background. So can you share any kind of tips and tricks that you're like, oh, I'm doing this with John V and I, you know, knew to do this when I was with little kids in the daycare. I think the first thing that came to mind was recognizing that these milestones don't have to be met at a certain time. They are guidelines for a reason. You know, if your child, for example, Genevieve is five months today and she's not completely rolling yet. She's on her way, but she's not completely there. I'm working with her because she didn't get as much tummy time as she should have needed because we had too many family around to pick her up all the time. But that was something that I was really stressed about at first. And I was like, oh my God, what did I do? Did I fail somehow? I should have known better because this is my background. I should have told people to put her down more. And I kind of had to take a step back a little bit and say, you've seen children who have turned out just fine, who have rolled at six months. You've seen children who have turned out just fine, who have rolled at three and a half. That's one thing that I think has been really helpful is the perspective of being able to work with kids and recognize she's doing this at her own pace. And you just need to pay attention to her cues to follow that. If anything really hits your intuition as, oh my God, this isn't right, follow up. But in, other than that, if it's something like, oh, I'm not totally sure. Let me do a little research. Then it's probably fine. And that's given me a lot of like grounding and all of this. So I I feel like I haven't been as stressed as I probably could have been as a first time mom, only because that background really kicked in and honestly saved my life. I'm not even going to lie in terms of anxiety, in terms of experience, it was the life jacket in the sea of chaos that is new motherhood. Right, right. Yeah. I'm so glad you had that knowing 
and can tap into it. That's that's so great. What are some life lessons that you want to teach your Janu? Whatever you are, love it. You don't have to be the best in the world at it. You don't have to be making it a career, but whatever you do and chase, make sure you genuinely love it. Don't quit on a bad day. That's something that I read recently. And I actually have never heard of a philosophy. I think that hits me harder than that one is don't quit on a bad day because we all have them. But on a good day, if you're looking around and you're thinking this doesn't give me as much joy, then there might be a situation there where you need to reevaluate. And that's something that I hope that she is able to learn by watching me and her dad and all of our loved ones is be able to chase life fully. Don't quit on a bad day. Make that decision at a high point. As a woman, society will often try to convince you to purr. But if you're really a lioness, you're going to roar anyway. And I want her to not be afraid to do that. I want her to be ferocious. And that was something I, you know, I've told the Jeeves before when we were pregnant. I said, I want her to be ferocious. I don't want her to, I don't want to teach her to purr. I want to teach her how to roar. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I mean, we are all lionesses and and superhuman in our own right. And I think yeah. the moment that we realize that, we step into the world with a different sense of self-worth and confidence and purpose. And so mm-hmm. I mean, if you're teaching her that at the onset, like she's going to go on to do big things. I hope so. I mean, I'm interested in hearing if you were told to be careful a lot, especially as an Indian woman, if you were told like come from a place of fear a little bit more as a woman than a place of go do this and we'll tackle the fear as it comes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. And in many different kind of avenues in my life. I I remember when I was an executive producer for a television network, I was really the lone female in the boardroom making decisions. And I was still very much a nice girl and collaborative, but I knew I wanted to be heard. I would stand up when I had something to say, you know, would have a presentation and supporting arguments and all these things. And I feel like it was an uphill battle because it was never as well received as men in the room who didn't come as prepared and um, didn't really have anything substantial to contribute. And it was just solely based on the fact that it was another dude, you know, and I just, I, I definitely hated that. I think many of them would have preferred if I was quieter and lost in the grand scheme of things. But I, I wanted to make sure that my ideas and vision was known. And it just, yeah, it was, it was hard. And then as a mom, I would say asking so many questions and trusting my mom's sense. I mean, that's the, the whole show is predicated upon that. And I think I had a lot of women this time whispering in my ears, you know, whether it was this auntie or that nanny or mom-in-law or whoever being like, you have to do it this way. You have to home remedies, whether, you know, I had so much methi when I was breastfeeding. I'm like, okay, I get it. I get it. You know, there's a, you know, certain natural logic to this and, and, and why it works, but I still wanted to chart my own path and make my own decisions for my twins. And then my younger one. And I didn't want to just blindly follow what other women were telling me to do. And so in that way too, I would clap back and be like, I am going to do it this way. And, and even that was informed by, you know, whether I was listening to podcasts or 
reading blogs or, you know, reading my own new age parenting books about it and how I made my informed decisions. I was like, my mom sense knows what's up. I'm not going to just listen to everybody else because they're doing it. I love that. And I think that there's such a power in teaching that to our daughters, especially, I mean, to all of our kids, but especially to our daughters, just because I feel like with boys, at least when I was growing up, I felt like they never got the be careful speech as much as we did as girls. And on one hand, yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, the world does require a little bit more care as a woman when you're walking down a street or whatever, we all know what that feels like. But when I'm I'm watching a child, you know, climb on monkey bars or something, I want to be able to look at John and say, how do you think you can make that safer as opposed to be careful? Because it's so much different thinking through, holy cow, there's already something wrong and now I need to fix it versus Okay, use my logic, use my intuition. Let me think through this problem and make this a better outcome for us and kind of give her a better sense of what the world will look like and how to solve a problem as opposed to the world of terrifying going scared. And, yes. you know, there's just such a difference in that approach. And she's only, she's very little, but I've already caught myself starting to ask that question so that she can get used to hearing that in her head. How can we make this safer as opposed to be scared or be careful and like operate, you know, like all, all your muscles are tense. Don't, don't worry about that. Like think through what you can do logically to make this the best situation for you. Exactly. Oh, I love that. She has a strong footing figuratively and literally because of that. Yeah. Tell us about a mom sense moment you had. A lot of them have been developmental milestones, I think. And also a lot of it was actually around breastfeeding, which I think that I was talking to a number of my cousins at a bachelorette last weekend and a couple of other moms. And they were saying, you know, this, this culture of guilt still exists on how you feed your kid, no matter what it is. Right. A lot of that was looking at my child and thinking I'm providing enough versus I'm providing too little, too much, not enough. What am I doing? How am I doing in comparison to everybody else? A lot of my mom sense, I think is really just saying, okay, cut the noise, mm-hmm. trust your gut. And so I stopped turning to social media or turning to outside resources unless there was an actual problem. And I had this rule throughout my pregnancy too, because I have a maternal health background, but I also have a tendency to know too much and freak out. So (laughs) I was like, all right, we're going to have some self-imposed laws here around what you can research and what you can't. If you genuinely have no concept of the answer, you are potentially allowed to look it up from only certain resources, like the ones that your doctor actually gives you. And then otherwise you're not allowed to go to Google. Like Google is going to convince you that you're going to have triplets when you're very, very sure you're only having one. So, yeah. you know, this instead of running down this, like this, this rabbit hole, let's take a step back. And I think that intuition has helped a lot in those cases to be able to rein back some of the panic and to say like, like really listen to yourself and mm-hmm. say, is this something to be freaked out about? Or is this, is she doing okay? And then those milestones are huge ones. And breastfeeding was a big one too, to know if it was right or not. What yes. was I doing? Yeah, those two spots. Yeah, that's, that's so great. Is there a quote that you live by? I think the one that always comes to mind every single time is just not all who wander are lost. That's, it's cliche, but it's still my favorite one of all time, I think, because what is life without a little bit of wandering? And how do you find where you're going without getting a little off first? Mm, oh, that's so, so beautiful and profound. And and how you're raising Janvi, you're, you're in that sense of wonderment and marvel, and you're doing exactly that. And you're, you know, you're not lost. That's really, really beautiful. 
And where can my listeners find you and support you and buy all your books? I am like the most millennial person ever. I will respond to every DM you send me on Instagram. And for whatever reason, (laughs) if you email me, I'm more likely to miss it. So you can find me on Instagram at Anika Sharma. I am newly on threads. I guess that's kind of a thing now too. I don't know if it's leading or not, but I'm there. And um, also on Anika Sharma on Twitter and um, Anika Sharma writes on Facebook. Amazing. Oh my gosh, Anika, this was such a treat. Thank you so much for sharing your journey. And, you know, you just brought about so many curious insights that we all have, especially when we're new parents. And so I'm glad that you are right here right now in this present moment to be sharing those with us. Thank you for having me. And I'm looking forward to connecting further with the listeners for this episode, but also with you, because as a friend, we've just had such a great time already together. And I'm hoping that we can change the world one a podcast episode at a time, respectively. Oh, hell yes. <laughs> <laughs> Anika Sharma is truly a Jill of all trades. And it was wonderful to be able to dive into all the things with her from motherhood to mental health. I think it's so important for us to have conversations and especially within our South Asian community because so many things are still considered stigma and taboo, whether it's navigating your health in postpartum or having a hard time breastfeeding or whatever it may be on your motherhood journey. And being a creative like an author or writer or journalist just adds to that, right? If you're going down a path that's not the beaten path, it's always a little harder. But believe me, it is all the more fulfilling when you pursue what you were meant to do. Anika is a testament to this. You can follow her on Instagram at Anika Sharma and definitely go buy her books wherever books are sold. I especially love Sugar Spice and Can't Play Nice, and I can't wait for her third installment. Anika, big hugs to you and baby Janu, and I will see you soon. And listeners, you can follow me where I post updates on all my incredible guests on Instagram. My handle is at Kanika Chadda Gupta on my website, thatstotalmomsense.com. And of course, wherever you get your podcast, Apple, Spotify, the show is everywhere. But be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. I can't wait to hear from you. Remember, always trust your mom sense and dad sense. Stay strong, super parents. I'll see you next time. That's total mom sense.